Anyways, we are at the Cato um, Emergent Technology and Restraint Talk series. Um, this series is meant to mimic the old style uh, Cato lunches we used to have back in the day when we could meet each other in person. And uh, Nina and I were commiserating about sandwiches and what delivers. And anyways, <laughs> now I'm hungry. So that's a problem. Uh, but today we have a great um, talk scheduled um, by Frank Smith. Uh, Frank Smith is the director of the Cyber Innovation Policy Institute at the Naval War College, uh, formerly of the University of Sydney. And he's gonna speak to us today about quantum, quantum hype and hype cycles. And today we also have a interesting and a added bonus of having Elsa uh, Kana as our moderator. She is a, uh, a student at the Harvard PhD program, also a senior fellow at CNAS. Um, she's hated by China. She has coined the term great power self-destruction and also the term Q day. So she is eminently qualified to moderate and host today because I simply am not, I don't know what quantum is really. I've heard about quantum for a while now, but I think you'll get, you'll be more served by having uh, Elsa lead the discussion today. So with that, I'll, I'll kick it off to Frank who will lead us through his presentation and then we'll have a, a healthy Q and A session. Thank you, Brandon, and uh, thank you all for your time and interest. Uh, it's definitely a pleasure and an honor to speak with you today as, as part of Brandon's Restraint and Emergent Technology Lecture Series. Um, never was in DC to attend in person, so I, I feel like I'm missing the strong tradition of sandwiches there, but um, hopefully time and circumstance will allow us all to rejoin in person one day soon. Um, the research that I'm going to discuss with you today um, is uh, research on this concept of technology hype that I started several years ago, actually long before learning about um, this particular series. But I think that the concepts and arguments that I'm going to um, at least present are really well suited to the themes of restraint and emergent technology. So my focus today is going to be threefold. First, quantum technology. Second is going to be discussing the exceptional expectations around this technology. And third, the consequences of those tech, uh, expectations. Sort of bottom line up front, I'm going to talk a lot today about talk, namely the discourse around quantum technology and this technology in the context of international security. This discourse I'm going to argue is important for better or worse. The language that we use to describe technology, <clears throat> pardon me, does work, does work both on technology itself, but also um, potentially threat perceptions in the international environment. But before saying more about this kind of talk and discourse, I think it's useful to say a few things about quantum technology itself. Um, uh, as Brandon indicated, it's not necessarily the most familiar, um, even though seeing the names on the call, um, there are many of you in the audience who are quite familiar with it. But let me um, start with a few words about the facts um, and artifacts involved. And by doing so, I'm going to pull up some slides. Oh, as now a government employee, the usual disclaimer, of course, applies that these views are my own and not representative of the War College or the US government. So what are quantum technologies? In a nutshell, I'd like to suggest to you that these are basically tools like other technologies. Quantum technologies are tools that use the special properties of quantum mechanics to do special kinds of work. 
quantum mechanics, as you will know, uh, describe physics at the atomic and subatomic level. So the mechanics that work at this scale are counterintuitive. They don't correspond to how we experience physics um, as people at a macroscopic scale. So at the quantum level, light and matter behave both as particles and waves. The nature of existence changes with observation. So this is what prompted uh, Albert Einstein's famous critique of spooky action at a distance. And reality itself is perhaps best conceived of as a complex function of mingled probabilities. Because these mechanics differ from classical physics, the work that we could potentially do with these mechanics also differs as well. And that's the potential of quantum technology. It's hard work, however, and quantum technology itself may not work. We can debate the extent to which what is now referred to as quantum technology is entirely new. Arguably, the advent of quantum mechanics effectively 100 years ago at least informed, um, perhaps described and informed technology that we're already quite familiar with ranging from nuclear weapons to transistors to lasers. But what's new today or what's argued to be new today is using the special properties of quantum systems to sense, process, and communicate information. So this application of um, quantum concepts to information theory is affected in part by the concept of a qubit, which is basically a mathematical abstraction, and it serves as the basic unit of data or information in quantum information sciences. As the name qubit suggests, this is the quantum analog to bits in classical computing. So bits are basically the fundamental unit of computation in pretty much every computer any of us have ever used, the computers that all of you are staring at now. Bits are physically embodied in transistors and they represent either the one or the zero in machine codes. And bits have discrete states. At any given time, any given bit is either a one or a zero, but never both. Qubits or quantum bits are different. They can exist in a superimposed state of both one and zero. So similar to Schrodinger's famous or infamous thought experiment of a cat being imagined as both alive and dead, bits can superimpose a continuum or a combination of multiple states. Qubits can also be entangled. So multiple qubits can be coupled with each other and thus correlated and linked in different states. In theory, like superposition, entanglement can be used to do work. Meaningful entanglement and superposition are very hard to achieve, which is why this technology is unproven. But in theory, these states and these conditions of quantum systems can be used to manipulate, calculate, and communicate information in ways that we are unable to do with digital electronics. So despite the difficulties involved with manipulating quantum systems, the potential or promise of quantum technology is now all the rage. Um, just as the special properties of quantum mechanics can potentially be used to do work, I'm going to argue to you today that the discourse or language of technology hype as sampled on this slide does work as well. So in the case of quantum technology, much of this language evokes um, or invokes 
exceptional expectations. Like other emerging technology, quantum is promised to revolutionize information technology, if not the world, as per the Time Magazine cover here. Um, those of you who follow the technology in the press will know that so-called breakthroughs in quantum technology research and development are reported on a regular basis. It's a feature in US press. It's also a prominent feature in uh, Chinese technology press and elsewhere. And much of this discourse dovetails with often breathless claims about great power competition, again, especially in the context of competition between the United States and China. So how can we understand these ex exceptional expectations for quantum technology? Where does it come from? Who listens? And how do, does this kind of language and these expectations associated with it impact technology, but also security policy? Those are the questions I aim to answer. I can't claim, of course, uh, to have created the concept of technology hype on my own. Related ideas appear uh, in the literature, in economics, in sociology, science and technology studies, um, and also business and marketing. So one of the most prominent expressions of this idea of technology hype is expressed by the Gartner hype cycle. The idea was pioneered by Jackie Fenn during the dot-com boom in the 1990s. Um, and Gartner, for those of you who don't know, is, I think it's fair to describe it as a technology consulting firm. So the Gartner model pictured here describes expectations about new technology as a combination of two curves, sort of combination illustrated in, in the upper graph. The first curve is a bell curve, which charts the rise and fall of buzz or expectations around new technology. The second curve is an S curve, which is really used in other literature to describe technology adoption or diffusion through a marketplace or through an international system. Gartner combines these two curves uh, to create the bimodal hype cycle, which I've redrawn on the lower and larger graph. Arrayed along this bimodal curve are a few of the technologies that Gartner argues are at different stages of this hype cycle, including quantum computing on the left. And part of Gartner's business model is annual and quarterly reports on different information technologies and where they potentially array along this particular curve. So they've had some success in terms of using this idea to drive their market analysis for um, commercial customers. So the Gartner hype cycle is arguably aesthetically appealing, if not um, intuitively so. I think it's fair to say that we've all witnessed seemingly inflated expectations about a new technology, as well as subsequent disappointment. But I wanna argue that this model is, I think fairly described as more stylized and rigorously theorized, and it suffers from both empirical and theoretical shortcomings. So empirically, Expectations about different technologies don't seem to track along the same curve as suggested by um, the hype cycle. For example, um, on what should be the right side of your screen, interest in quantum computing, if as evidenced by sort of tracking Google search queries for the term quantum computing, don't really correspond or map to where we see quantum computing placed on um, the stylized Gartner curve on the right. Um, I think it's also fair to say that expectations about new technologies 
have been seen to cycle through multiple peaks and troughs over time, not just the one high and uh, one low as um, described by the Gartner model. Perhaps more problematically though, from a theoretical perspective, the Gartner model assumes that hype is an exaggeration. In order though for hype to be an exaggeration, it must not only be wrong, it must not only overstate the case, but it also has to be knowably wrong at the time. If we don't know that it's wrong at the time, it's hard to accuse or call a claim an exaggeration. The problem here though is that technology hype refers to future states and the future is inherently uncertain and indeterminate. Simply put, we do not have a crystal ball. Lacking a crystal ball, we can't measure present day expectations against technological performance in the future. So we can't actually know what is or isn't an exaggeration. And even technological expertise doesn't solve this problem because experts aren't clairvoyant. Um, it's therefore problematic to define hype as an exaggeration when simply put, it may or may not be, and we actually can't tell. So I argue that this suggests that there's better room for both better theory and better theoretic and better empirical analysis. I'll be happy to discuss my definition of hype in more detail uh, during Q&A, but for now, let me just posit that rather than treating hype as an exaggeration per se, I think it's more useful to define it as a particular kind of performative discourse. Now, this discourse in concrete refers to references to pending revolutionary, disruptive, breakthrough, or game-changing technology. Accurate or not, and I mean that, accurate or not, it may be true, it may not be true. Um, this is an important kind of language about the future, and it's performative uh, because it actually does work. It's not merely descriptive. I make five basic arguments about this discourse. First is that hype is common. Second is that some, audience accept, some audiences accept this kind of language, but others don't. Third is that the hype you accept tends to depend upon what you're already familiar with. So I'll explain more shortly. Fourth is that accepted hype can shape technological development. And fifth is that accepted hype can also shape uh, the security environment. So let me briefly touch upon each of these in turn. My first proposition to you today is that hype is normal. So discourse about revolution is common among scientists and technologists. It's common in marketing and advertising. It's common in news, media, and journalism. And it's common, um, perhaps counterintuitively, in the national security community. And I'm particularly interested in the link between technology hype and security. And as I depict on this uh, chart um, pulling from uh, Factiva data on global news and reporting, media about quantum hype, so media which includes terminology about quantum technology and terminology about security or the military or threat has increased over time. Quantum computing, which is the solid line here, is most often hyped in the context of security, but quantum communications, which um, is the smaller dotted line, is likewise hyped um, at uh, a similar frequency over time. So this raises the question of why is hype common? Why is it normal? Let me suggest to you that for one, we hype because we can. So again, the uncertainty and indeterminacy about the future enable this kind of performance. 
Um, second, also suggest to you that hype also actually feels good. So expectant discourse about the future can be stimulating. Imagining technological fixes to hard problems, societal security or otherwise, is an attractive fantasy. I think hype can also be seen as appropriate. So we tell each other stories about technological revolutions in the past, such as the Industrial Revolution. And we tell each other stories about radical change in the future. Now, some of these stories are explicitly couched in the context of fantasy. So science fiction, I think, uh, uh, is a prime example. But other stories that we tell um, and are seen to be appropriate regarding the future classify as what I'm describing as technology hype. Last but not least, I think hype is commonplace because it actually pays off. So it can attract attention and attention is a scarce resource, part of why I'm so grateful for your time this afternoon. When mm -hmm. accepted, um, hype can also likewise mobilize other resources, including money, um, which can uh, serve for the purposes of often extraordinary investments in research and development. So my second proposition is that just because there's an ample supply of hype doesn't mean that it's automatically accepted. Um, uh, for those of you in, in the quantum space, there's a, uh, a, a Twitter account um, uh, as shown here on this slide, which judges different articles and, and claims that come forward in terms of uh, whether or not they count as bullshit or not. My point here is that audience acceptance of technology hype quantum or otherwise varies. A given technology may be the shiny new darling on Wall Street or Silicon Valley, yet the national security may not accept expectations or similar expectations about its potential. National security community in the United States may not necessarily accept the same expectations of national security communities in other countries. And there's also important variation within the US national security community. So such variation I try to illustrate here by alternative interpretations of the potential of quantum technology between the United States Air Force Science Board quoted on the left and the National Security Agency quoted on the right. This kind of interpretive flexibility really underscores my argument about why it's more useful to define hype as discourse rather than exaggeration because there's no authoritative arbiter of what the future will hold perhaps beyond the passage of time itself. And experts accepting hype isn't the same as those experts having proven its accuracy. Variation, especially among expert audiences in the national security community, therefore raise the important question of why does a given audience accept or reject technology hype? I'm going to posit to you that we tend to accept the hype that we want. We tend to embrace exceptional expectations so long as they're familiar and compatible with our established identities and interests. Conversely, we tend to reject or dismiss claims of revolution, claims of disruption, when the suggested applications and implications are unfamiliar to us. Said another way, I argue that acceptable hype is really an extension of what Thomas Kuhn referred to as normal science. Acceptable hype involves, yes, some novelty, but it's novelty entertained inside an established paradigm or an organizational framework. Um, this may explain why on the previous slide, 
the National Security Agency, for example, was willing to entertain higher expectations about quantum computing than the Air Force. Imagined applications of quantum computing could be seen within the NSA wheelhouse, less so for the Air Force. And happy to delve more into this during Q&A. Hype isn't just cheap talk, or at least it's not always cheap talk. It's not always sales. Acceptance by some audiences can influence important outcomes, including the science and technology itself. So this is yet another reason why we can't simply dismiss technology hype as merely exaggeration, because it can become actually a self-fulfilling prophecy. So to the extent that hype helps mobilize resources, such as uh, research funding and attention for some kinds of technological development as opposed to others, it actually can help make some kinds of technological futures more likely than other technological futures. So a classic example here is Moore's Law, which many of you will recall, it's about digital, not quantum chip density, doubling every 18 months. Moore's Law isn't like one of Newton's law. It isn't a law of physics. It's not a 10 commandment that thou shall double um, digital chip density every 18 months. Rather, Moore's law was an exceptional expectation about what was possible. And this expectation was accepted and as a result mobilized extraordinary measures, particularly on the part of the chip industry, to in fact make it so year after year, billions after billions of dollars chasing this um, and in some ways making, at least until recently, very real, this expectation into a reality. Now let me stress that quantum computing is not, I repeat, not a natural, obvious, or inevitable extension of Moore's law. Many references to exponential change in technology are, you might guess, technology hype according to my definition. But quantum hype does correspond to increasingly extraordinary investments into quantum research and development in Europe, in China, in the US, in my former home of Australia and elsewhere, as illustrated um, on these slides in terms of the European Union's quantum flagship initiative. Um, and Elsa can perhaps say more about uh, Chinese investments into developing um, the largest quantum research facilities and quantum cities um, and uh, billion plus investments into uh, the quantum initiative on the US side. These investments have consequences. So accepted hype has winners and losers. To the extent to which uh, quantum appears to be a winner right now, and we can talk about the prospect of a quantum winter or downturn or disappointment later. Um, but these investments in R&D mean that quantum research and development is winning. Other kinds of research and development are losing out as a consequence. So there are trade-offs. There is no such thing as a free lunch in science and technology as elsewhere. So finally, and relatedly, I argue that technology hype can also shape the security environment. So this discourse interacts with the security dilemma between states in the international system. In theory, threat perceptions in international relations depend in part on expectations about offensive and defensive technology. These expectations include expectations about future technology and therefore they will overlap with technology hype as I've defined it. If acceptable hype depends, as I suggest, on established identities and interests, 
And if most military establishments tend to favor the offense, as a large body of literature and security studies and international relations suggests, then the hype that military establishments tend to accept may make the security dilemma more intense. Said another way, technology hype can potentially be escalatory. Now, there's a lot more to be said here, and I'm really still developing this line of argument. But as the headlines I've cut and pasted for you suggest, quantum technology development is often and increasingly described as a race. Um, this race is often interpreted in terms of the United States versus China, not exclusively so, but often so. And references to this quantum race aren't far removed from the rhetoric of an arms race. Let me conclude with a few uh, brief practical implications of my analysis. First, um, technology hype certainly isn't limited to quantum technology. I could give a very similar lecture about artificial intelligence or blockchain, um, and hype isn't limited to information technology either. Witness the hype around hypersonic missiles. If I'm correct, then my analysis of hype and the arguments that I make uh, stand to be broadly applicable. Second, words matter. Since I don't define hype as an exaggeration, I don't accuse either speakers or audiences who use or accept this language as necessarily being wrong. That said, I do caution myself and everyone on this call against uncritical use of terminology like revolution or disruption. Now, if you're a historian and want to apply these terms to technological change retrospectively, I really have no problem with that. Social scientists can use the historical evidence that's available to weigh the merits of such claims. But if you're using this terminology to talk about the future, then you are by definition working with supposition and speculation. You might be correct, you might be wrong, but the same can effectively be said about any fortune teller. Finally, as hard as it is to do, and I'll paraphrase uh, one of my um, mentors, Lynn Eden here, I encourage all of us to think, try at least, to think about what we're not thinking about. So in my analysis, the problem with hype isn't that hype is an exaggeration. The problem with hype isn't that it's necessarily wrong. Rather, it's potentially dangerous because we're more likely to entertain or accept hype when it supports our prior beliefs. So all too often references to technological revolution in effect become another way of basically exclaiming what I've always said, just more so. And I think the same potentially goes for military and intelligence services and other elements of the national security community. So at the very least, I'd encourage us all to cast a skeptical eye on technology hype that really doubles down on long-held or parochial beliefs and bureaucratic interests. If you'd like to read more about my argument, uh, you're welcome to check out my recent article in Security Dialogue. I'm also writing a book on hype information technology and war, and therefore any feedback, comments, and questions today are really gonna be helpful in helping me hone my own thinking in my manuscript. So with that, let me thank you all again for your time. I'll uh, stop sharing my screen and uh, hand the mic over to Elsa. All right. No, well, I was just going to turn it over to you, Elsa. So with that, we'll turn it over to Elsa for a few questions, and then we'll go to the, the audience um, after that.
if you can raise your hand from the audience if you want to ask a question and either Elsa or I will call on you after they have a little bit of a one-on-one. -on -one. All right, well, first of all, thank you, Frank. I think this is a really consequential, consequential research and certainly uh, as someone within this uh, environment of technology, national security, anecdotally, I see so, so many uh, pieces of evidence and indicators of that hype and the kind of distortion it can cause. So really appreciate the research and would recommend anyone who hasn't already, I read the article in full and I'll be excited to see the book project. And a couple of comments that came to mind in reading and uh, listening to your arguments here. And one that I'd raise is the uh, first is the role of the media in generating some of this hype. And I think some of this can, can be characterized against the backdrop of the clickbaitification of news and sort of the tendency to, to uh, choose the most sensational framing and headlines. And any of us who's ever tried to write an op-ed with a nuanced argument only to find that the title is uh, the US-China AI arms race to pick a personal example and uh, try to fight the editor on that. I think, uh, yeah, I think that this is, I mean, are arguably some of the incentives of media organizations and how they frame it and journalists. And as you mentioned, the uh, quest to capture attention in a world of information saturation, uh, that, that that does seem to be shaping this as well. And, and there's also been some interesting research underway about the role of social media in particular. And some work from Ian Johnson, uh, for instance, recently that looked at the role of memes in the US-China security dilemma and how a certain word or phrase can start to carry a lot of uh, a lot of salience enough that it shapes the shapes the narrative beyond reality so china being assertive or the malign influence phrasing seen from the trump administration or you know sort of even the very notion of quantum supremacy itself and yeah i'd be curious to hear your take on some of the attempts by scientists within the field to push back on that i know there's been recently some ongoing efforts to rebrand quantum supremacy as quantum advantage which is arguably a more accurate characterization of a turn of phrase that is very conducive to that hype in the first place and certainly some perhaps history and path dependency to how the fields get to where they are but yeah i guess also on the theme of hype as not just uh, accepted but as self-interested is both observationally and anecdotally there seem to be sort of ways in which the hype can emerge as a consequence of bureaucracy and the challenge of actualizing change within military organizations where there are competing priorities so perhaps a, another theory or complementary explanation of hype would be that to reorient national security institutions to focus on new threats and direct investments in new directions the overcorrection or the sort of exaggerated presentation of threat is one of the few ways to start to move the needle and convince senior leaders of that AI or QIS is important in the first place. So I think definitely would agree that it's nonetheless uh, can be damaging and distortionary, but I think sometimes there, there, there seem to be sort of features of bureaucracies that tend to result in that sort of over overcorrection to draw attention from existing priorities to new. So perhaps some relation to existing theories of military innovation there and the challenge of, uh, of, of change within, within that kind of organizational environment. And I guess a, a final point I'd raise would be as sort of an observer of the hype within China's information environment. I think there also might be an argument about how the dynamics of hype differ across different countries. And again, based on the different incentives of those generating that hype. So for instance, some of the hype we've seen from the Chinese government and PR state media, I would argue is an extension of propaganda. And in some case, there's discourse on sort of s propagandizing as an element of 
burnishing the Chinese Communist Party's reputation. I've argued that innovation is an element of Xi Jinping's ideology and strategy for legitimation because sort of strategies of development is driven by innovation have become really core to his agenda. So arguably there are perhaps different forces and factors driving hype across different countries and depending upon the uh, level of state control or influence uh, than the media environment. Russia might be another interesting comparison there. And I guess I will uh, I will st stop there for now, but I guess a quick question I'd raise before I turn it over to the audience is, do you think we've started to pass the peak of, uh, of inflated expectations on quantum, or is there still more hype ahead? And uh, I'm curious to hear your take on the quantum advantage reframing and or do we have a quantum winter ahead? Fair enough. Uh, maybe I'll um, speak briefly to that and then uh, hand the mic back over uh, uh, to you, Elsa, for uh, uh, um, uh, pulling up the, uh, the questions um, from the audience. Uh, role of media, uh, first, uh, couldn't agree more. Um, and um, the interesting thing about uh, this sort of relationship to media in this context is um, for me, uh, how the relationship between scientists and technologists and the media in this context. So um, scientists and technologists like to blame the media um, for over-sensationalizing things, except when those, that over-sensationalization happens to benefit their area of research or their laboratory or their university. So it's part of why I think it's useful to think of um, the technologists and scientists in the quantum space as in other domains, really as we would effectively any other special interest group. Um, they make Metonian claims to having special access to unique authority and knowledge and capital T truth. Uh, but when push comes to shove about research dollars and all of us, many of us have you know, put in grant applications and the like, um, the differences between scientists and technologists and their relationship with the media aren't that great from other special interest groups and their relationship with how work and activities are represented in the media. So yes, there is sensationalism and, and a clickbait dynamic there and the media has, and I'm using the media as, as a monolith recognizing that that's also unfair, has an independent effect on the discourse that gets used, um, but uh, that discourse, the use of discourse there is not entirely discordant from how scientists and technologists use that discourse when it is in their institutional or uh, uh, professional interest. Um, and likewise, as we see in terms of uh, some of the pushback um, on quantum, it's interesting that um, one indicator that there is quantum hype is that you have scientists who five or 10 years ago were the ones out there very forward leaning about um, the revolutionary potential of quantum technology now being critical about others having adopted similarly exceptional or extraordinary language um, about those capabilities. Um, so I wouldn't, don't disagree and, and again sort of point to that as the potential utility of this language to the extent to which it works for self-interested actors. Um, my concern regarding the notion of the utility of this language in the context of military innovation in particular, again, and I'm trying to walk a line between on the one hand saying I'm not I'm not, I am not putting a 
stake on whether or not these claims are accurate or inaccurate, or some of these claims. There are claims which um, the probabilities of their accuracy drop precipitously. Um, but the danger, I think, potentially in terms of the context of military innovation and, and turning the battleship, as it were, is that if I'm correct that audiences in the national security community are most likely to accept the hype that they're all that basically validates what they already want to do then the notion that references to technological revolution and the like are in some ways inoculating us against technological surprise fall apart so again speaking for myself and not for the u.s navy but if the u.s navy is excited about hypersonic missiles because it allows the navy to um, you know build more ships um, or increase the magazine capacity on its existing ships and not ask fundamental questions about for example is a carrier battle group the correct way to organize um, a blue water navy in the 21st century the hype around hypersonic missiles is not really prompting innovative thinking, as it were, it's helping justify, again, established parochial or bureaucratic interests. Um, let me, because um, I'm keen to hear the other questions, um, I can uh, come back to sort of um, whether or not a quantum winter is pending. Short answer is probably, um, but definitely want to hear the other questions uh, before um, saying more. Over. All right, and I think uh, John Mueller had his hand raised first, so uh, feel free to go ahead, sir. Okay, uh, let me ask maybe two quick questions. Um, one is um, uh, a lot of hype doesn't sell. For example, people are hyping the dangers of genetically modified food. That sells pretty well in Britain, but isn't selling in the United States. Global warming concerns about itself in some places much better than others. And so would you talk a little bit about hype that doesn't sell, that doesn't get accepted? There is no upward curve, it's just sort of uh, like most, most, most campaigning uh, and most um, uh, uh, selling of products fail. I mean, they don't make, they don't, they don't make any money. They, they, um, 90% maybe uh, new products fail. Uh, the other is, uh, would you have any kind of special punishment for people who continually hype threats or fears and are proven wrong? I mean, you're absolutely right. Of course, you can't know until the future, but eventually you can say this guy didn't know what he was talking about. Nothing happened. Uh, so is there some way you could, um, I mean, I assume you're against capital punishment, but you know, some sort of uh, uh, effort to deal with people who, for example, in 1991, write a book called The Coming War with Japan, and then are later made head of Stratfor, a strategic uh, prediction company, making a lot of money. I mean, why aren't they punished instead of rewarded for being wrong? Um, both excellent questions, thank you. Um, Yes, uh, a lot of hype doesn't sell, um, and that's why sort of emphasizing variation in audience acceptance, I think, is, is really key. Um, GMO and global warming are excellent examples, and, and in those, as you flag, you do see a lot of variation between, this gets to Elsa's points about variation across countries, um, so concern about GMO, genetically modified organisms, resonated much more in, the, uh, in Europe than it did stateside. I think there are broader arguments that one can make about, uh, I don't want to say neoliberalism and capitalism, but um, you could link the argument or the family of arguments that I'm making into some of those broader debates. My focus is 
really on the national security community and the variation therein, um, which I think is both interesting and important. It's interesting because we often treat the national security community as a special reservoir of, you know, conservative, small c conservative expert, and therefore unlikely to buy snake oil. Um, and yet, I think when you actually look at uh, the language, rhetoric, and discourse that is used in the national security community, broadly defined, um, I'll put those of us on the call in that community as, as well as um, formal organizations and institutions, similar sorts of language crops up. And so I'm interested in the, the resonance and rejection within our little slice of, of the marketplace of ideas. Um, as, as for punishment, um, the argument that I would like to make uh, and the interesting dynamic that I would like to flag and I think I can help explain is why does hype cycle? And this is why I beat it up on the, the Gartner model for only having one peak and one trough. So um, artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence has been hyped for more than half a century now um, and gone through various boom and bust winters and summers, including um, in the early 80s when similar to the book about the coming war with Japan, part of the concern about Japan was that Japan was going to, you know, eat our lunch in terms of development of artificial intelligence. That didn't happen. And so for me, the interesting question isn't I'll leave punishment to others, but basically why keep coming, why we keep coming back to accepting hype that has been disproven five, 10 or 15 years ago. And again, this links to my notion of we tend to believe what we want to believe. So AI, we're willing to give AI another chance, even after giving it, having given it four or five chances over the last half century because it corresponds to, or at least in applications, it correspond to things that we already want to do. So military command and control, military command and control featured in AI in the 1950s, in the 1960s, in the 1970s, 80s, and surprise, surprise, third offset, it features again. So we're willing to give, even when it's been disproven, even when it's proven wrong or is yet to deliver in the past, so long as it corresponds to stuff we already wanted to do, we're willing to give it an extra chance. Over. All right, and I think I'll call on uh, John Lindsay next. All right. Hello. Um, Frank, it's great to see you, um, and I'm, I'm so happy this paper is out. I just want to, again, commend it to everybody to read that. I think it's already what, three years ago that we were at this conference in Sydney where we started talking about quantum computing, and, and it seemed hyped at the time, and, uh, and it still sort of does. So, so this is really, really interesting. Um, I love the concept of the self-fulfilling prophecy, and I think you've also kind of intimated in, in your later remarks here um, that it can also be a self-denying prophecy. Uh, you know, um, I, I think back to kind of claims about strategic bombing. I see John Gay in the uh, in the chat mentioned kind of um, all the exuberant uh, expectations were there, and the story that we sort of tell ourselves these days is. Oh, Baldwin was wrong. He said the bomber would always get through. The Battle of Britain shows that the bomber does not get through. Uh, air defenses were robust in World War II. Uh, terrible suffering, okay? Um, so that was obviously hype. But what's really interesting is if you look at the air defense innovation, 
Um, the RAF bought that, right? Bomber Command was promoting it for their own parochial reasons, but people really believed, holy shit, the bomber is going to get through. If we don't build robust air defenses, it's not just going to be Gotha bombers, it's going to be, you know, London completely in flames. So it encouraged all of this effort to, to build that up, right? And it seemed, even though it was hyped, and some people suspected that there was hype, there was enough earnest belief in it that it catalyzed investments in uh, defense. So, um, so, you know, we've kind of got this situation where hype, you know, might be useful, but in this completely, you know, opposite way. Um, and, and, you know, I'm on record saying, I think the same thing is going on with, with quantum, right? I mean, you know, we wouldn't have NIST taking it so seriously that the quantum threat is now no longer a threat because we're going to have a big rollout of, you know, quantum safe classical crypto, right? Well, part of that is because there has been enough people and policymakers that really believe that the quantum threat is, is a real, real threat. Um, but I think the interesting theoretical question this raises is, is hey, now hype can be used for lots of people to uh, call attention to a threat that you think is real but unappreciated. Um, it can be used to, um, you know, uh, pump up your parochial organizational interests. Uh, and that kind of goes back to these kind of basic questions about military innovation. Does it come from the international system that has to get translated through civilians? Does it come from organizational and bureaucratic interests? Um, and if hype is just going to be used instrumentally for either of those, how much independent work do you think instrumental hype is doing to bring these realities into place? Or is it just kind of this epiphenomenal you know, indicator of these other kind of causal factors in the background that we really care that are either causing or suppressing innovation? But, but thanks a lot, it's a fantastic talk and a great project. Thanks, John. And uh, for anyone on the call who hasn't uh, read John's work, it sort of, I think, provides uh, one of the best plain English explanations to uh, the technology uh, that I have glossed over under the rubric of, of, of quantum technology. Um, so um, uh, definitely want to flag that. Um, the uh, I think there are excellent examples, and this goes to sort of my broader applicability claim regarding um, uh, the hype, as you've suggested, in terms of strategic bombing in, in the British case, and air power in general, right? Um, uh, air power advocates uh, the relationship between technology and the uh, uh, suggested um, independent effect of, of air power on conflict outcomes um, in the United States, particularly and, and elsewhere, I think is another to mix uh, metaphors or pun target rich environment for looking at this sort of, of, of language in the context of bureaucratic or parochial interest and security policy. Whether or not it has an independent effect um, or is epiphenomenal. Um, so that's obviously the hard question, uh, which makes it a great question. Um, I'm going, I'm not trying to suggest that, I'm not trying to provide a monocausal explanation um, that these outcomes, the only reason why we see these outcomes is because of this language. Um, so I'm not going the social constructivist, I turtles all the way down, it's just discourse. That's really where part of my argument uh, parts ways with stronger or more um, 
uh, you know, sort of postmodern interpretations of securitization and discourse analysis. Um, I do, though, think and want to suggest and encourage everyone on this call to, to push back on me, though, on this, that there isn't an independent effect. Um, and part of that independent effect is because the domain of discussion is the future, um, unmade and to be determined, that to ex the extent to which this language affects our um, imagination of the conditions of possibility and well and truly affects research and development um, investment decisions. And again, back to sort of personal experience of sort of how we write grant applications. You say, well, my work is going to have a uh, marginal increase on uh, the state of knowledge. Um, it'll move the needle a little bit. Um, that grant application doesn't stand out as this is the greatest single contribution to international relations, um, you know, since Kenneth Waltz or whatever. So to the extent that it is accepted or believed, I want to posit to you that it does affect the trajectory of the research and development that is done, and therefore what is or is not technologically possible. Um, at the same time in this perhaps, fits under your notion of the self-denying prophecies, what is believed mass other uh, capabilities? So even in the context of quantum, for example, I would suggest that the hype and energy and attention around breaking public key encryption and the notion that we need, need post-quantum cryptography really focuses on the exposure of, of secrets, for example, and that's what a lot of the rhetoric and discourse is about in the literature, less other aspects of cybersecurity, such as authentication, which relies on much the same infrastructure. The solutions, though, are potentially quite different and perhaps not well served by investments in matrix or other sort of uh, encryption algorithms that may solve part of the quantum problem that gets a lot of attention, but not parts of the quantum problem which um, are less flashy or sexy. Um, so trying to make the argument that there's an independent effect, um, but that is obviously the uh, soft spot um, uh, in, uh, in my argument. Over. Right, and next we'll go to Nina. Uh, so thanks, Frank, for the for the presentation. And I I, um, uh, I haven't read the, the piece yet, and I, it's a long overdue, so I apologize. My question is about uh, case selection for this. And so, um, and, and if you end up naming a chapter after this, I want credit. But my question is about um, entangled discourse. So um, for instance, and I'm unaware of whether or not this works uh, historically, but so, right, you, have, you have one discourse about commercial airlines and travel. And you have another discourse in the military about what, what planes are for. And I'm wondering, um, these in my mind, historically, I don't actually know, um, are two separate discourses and, they, and I'm not sure if they ever met. Um, conversely, like in the contemporary application of these technologies, insofar as they're driven by the private sector and private sector's discourse about what they're used for, to what degree does that entanglement either um, frustrate the capacity for the hype to work or does it, or is it simply ignored as just a sort of a dissonance so i'm just curious again if you name the chapter entangled discourses i win but um but overall i'm just curious about your answer 
fair enough. You can uh, hold me hold me to that um, uh, in copywriting rights. Um, I think actually the increasing correspondence between commercial technological development and military technological development, um, in some ways back to, to John's question about independent effect, suggests that hype may be becoming even more important because as, and we've seen this uh, since sort of the balance of research and development funding um, uh, shifted in the 80s um, from mostly government and mostly military to increasingly and now mostly commercial and mostly private, the, I don't want to describe it as an inferiority complex, but the increasingly dawning recognition within DOD and elsewhere that the military depends on or and must engage with and have access to technology within the commercial sphere increases correspondence across that sort of commercial private sector divide, often for, for the good. I don't want to suggest that it's entirely a bad thing. But with that, one could argue also means that commercial marketing and sales is penetrating and influencing and in sometimes being accepted and parroted within the national security, perhaps even more so than in the past. So. Um, to pick on, the, for example, the, the rhetoric around the revolution of military affairs in the 1990s, you had statements there that DOD needed to um, innovate like Microsoft in order to get permanent lock-in, and it didn't want to be like Apple, which had been at the time was pre perceived to be destroyed. Um, and so you had much of the at least superficial adoption of uh, business speak, for lack of a better term, into um, some aspects of the national security community trying to replicate and incorporate ideas, if not technology, from the commercial sector, and doing so in an uncritical way that, in retrospect, looks laughable, in the sense of trying to be like Microsoft versus Apple, and having prematurely relegated Apple to the dustbin of history when, um, obviously, that is not the case. So I think, the, the, in short, the increase in correspondence or interaction and really reliance of the U.S. national security community on uh, commercial industry, particularly in information technology, means that we perhaps need to even be more cautious or careful about the language of marketing, the language of sales bleeding into um, or being uncritically adopted in national security documents um, and doctrine and other forms of, of in-house correspondence. Over. All right, so we still have at least two questions for Mike and Eugene, but we have less than five minutes left. So are you able to stay a little bit past uh, past one, Frank, or should we try to wrap up uh, promptly in the hour? I'm uh, delighted to stay as long as anyone is, is willing to entertain my ideas. So I'm here as long as you need. Right, so I'll take uh, Eugene's question, then go to Mike, then Doyle. I believe you had a question initially as well, so we may have time to get that in. If uh, folks want to stay and keep talking, uh, tech, uh, did we figure it all out today? Um, well, so Frank, you just drove me up a tree a little bit, and I put it in the chat about you, you, you're a, you're giving a talk warning against hype, uh, or hype is not all exaggeration is one of your fundamental points, but talking about a cycle of hype, yet you're accepting a lot, sort of, you aren't following your skeptical advice about 
commercial military integration and the re relation between spin-off and or commercial and military technologies, the spin-off and spin-on literature, which is wildly exaggerated. So um, it's just it's I guess I'm just quickly commenting that it's hard to do what you are recommending doing um, because you don't know what to be skeptical about or it's hard to be skeptical of everything. Anyway, I had I had um, uh, I think two short questions. Uh, they might, I, don't, I don't know if they're short. So the um, first one was, um, as we were talking about um, uh, military innovation and the role of hype in military innovation, um, uh, some of the conversation kind of fell back on literature about military innovation um, that we are very familiar with in international relations. It's basically about doctrinal information. Um, and we started to talk about strategic bombing um, and uh, you know, how air power would be used as opposed to something you started out talking about, the technological artifacts themselves, the, the technological innovation or the equipment. So developing a new bomber as opposed to how it would be used. And you know, I thought of um, uh, non-high-tech innovations like the hype over counterinsurgency doctrine, right? As it was gonna solve all our problems and fix Iraq and everything else. Like there are cycles of hype that have nothing to do with um, technology. And I wonder um, if hype cycles about technology are the same or are different from hype cycles about the use of technology or some or applications or, or something along those lines. Because it's always struck me that the politics are different, right? So um, I don't know about the discourse. Discourse isn't really my thing. But um, if uh, you're talking about um, technological innovations that are going to um, change profit prospects for companies or change the installed base of things that people rely on or, or, you know, a whole set of different physical world things. There's a very different set of politics about that than the politics about, um, you know, counterinsurgency doctrine versus firepower for dealing with insurgencies. So wondering about that, about discourse. And then I also wanted to um, ask you, you talked a lot about hype and the hype cycle, and you have this theory of, of, of technology that you presented or, or dis technology discourse that you presented. And then you sort of tacked on the bit about security at the end and the relationship to the security dilemma and um, uh, organizational preferences for offensive um, activities. And um, uh, I was ho hoping you might develop that some more. It struck me that you know, you said I'm all about security, but then you weren't talking that much about security. I wonder how you think technology, so to me, technology hype is just what you do to get something done. Like you have to tell a story, otherwise you wouldn't do anything. Like Albert Hirschman wrote a long time ago that if we were being purely rational about investment, we would be paralyzed because we can never be sure it's going to work. You have to tell yourself a big story about it. But what if you were trying to tell yourself a big story about solving a defensive strategic problem? Um, wouldn't you then still use hype? And wouldn't it actually ameliorate the security dilemma instead of um, exacerbating it? Great questions. Um, uh, so um, I think 
and this is my thinking, that this notion of technology hype that I'm, I'm flagging and really trying to import into security studies uh, analysis and, and literature um, is a subset of a, uh, it's a subset of a broader literature uh, in other sociology, business marketing, et cetera, and therefore a subset potentially of, of hype writ large. Um, so I, I concede the possibility that um, technology hype at first cut and technology hype at second cut may have overlapping but nevertheless distinct dynamics and motivations and, and consequences than hype more broadly um, and particularly hype that does not refer to technology. And I, your point about counterterrorism and coin are, are interesting examples that I want to think through. For me though, what makes the uh, technology hype component important is, is sort of twofold. So one, it's explicitly about the future. So it's explicitly about techno technological capabilities that are promised but are yet to be manifest or deliver. And so I think that's slightly different and you can push back on me than the at least the flavor of we have a counterterrorism problem or a counterinsurgency problem and here's what we need to be doing differently now with what we have now to solve this problem now In some senses the not that those aren't hyped but for me the the criticism of treating hype as an exaggeration hinges a lot on this notion of the indeterminacy of the future to the extent to which and obviously, you know, battleground conditions in the present are uncertain and fog of war and all that applies. I'm just amplifying that when you cast it into the future. And that actually relates, I think, nicely to your to your second point in terms of where I hope to develop this work is more linking the relationship between this discourse and discourse about inherently uncertain conditions with uncertainty as conditionally as traditionally conceived of in concepts such as a security dilemma and the potential impact. So I do think as, as you flag that the possibility of defensive hype is certainly a possibility. So I don't want to suggest that hype is always escalatory or always biased towards the offense. But if my arguments about the that we accept and that institutions tend to accept, listen to, and uh, a parrot or echo lines of argument or logic which already co correspond with their priors, then that would suggest that on balance, the not all hype is necessarily offensive, but the hype that tends to be accepted um, would probably have an offensive bias and probably be more feed into escalatory arms race dynamics rather than uh, diffusion per se. But there, there, I'd love to chat with you offline because one could um, take the argument that, you know, China is developing, for example, quantum key encryption, um, uh, which is a form of quantum communication, seemingly defensive technology. Does that diffuse tensions between U.S. and Chinese technological rivalry and applications for naval forces and the like. As yet, I'm yet to see a lot of arguments out there in the press that, oh, Chinese are, their, their investments in quantum are only on quantum communications to keep their secrets from the NSA. Therefore, this indicates that we don't need to worry about them. It's 
still recast in, oh, their submarines will be able to communicate secretly to each other while they're out there hunting to kill us. Therefore, we need to redouble our offensive capabilities to counteract the Chinese quantum advantage. So logically, you could see envision defensive hype as well as offensive hype. But when you couple it with sort of institutional and organizational priors, I'm suggesting that the balance of the discourse that gets accepted and replicated um, tends to uh, reinforce some of those offensive biases flagged in other literature and security studies. Over. Thank for uh, the QKD uh, enthusiasm, but that's another story perhaps. So I guess we will uh, now go to Mike. Thank you for uh, being patient as we've had a lot of great questions. And then e either John or John, I don't know if uh, John really or still have your hand raised for another question and John Lindsay had another question in the chat. So uh, please still a bit more to discuss before we wrap up. Hey, can you hear me okay? Um, yeah, so Frank, this is terrific. Just a, uh, two quick um, questions. So one is your argument about the acceptance of hype and having to do with familiarity. And this, for example, you used to explain why the NSA embraces quantum, whereas the Air Force may be more reluctant. But I was wondering your thoughts on how legitimate or rational is that? So in other words, is it really that the Air Force um, doesn't have that many op obvious applications for quantum or other emerging technologies, or is it an unjustified rejection? And this is important because it could be the difference between rationally embracing technologies when it makes sense uh, versus unjustifiably rejecting them when it doesn't. And the second, I just want to foot stomp one of Elsa's points, not so much a question, but helping you think through the security dynamics that Eugene had also brought up. Basically that if, if it's true that we use hype uh, about an emerging technology as a way to shake organizations out of their kind of stale thinking and into uh, embracing new emerging technologies, that could have the implication of creating these security dilemma dynamics um, that kind of go, go out into the ether. And once the genie is out of the bottle, it's really hard. And so you might have this dilemma between not wanting to overhype something to manage security concerns, but also wanting to hype something up a little bit in order to get organizations to adopt it. So that could be an interesting dynamic to explore uh, moving forward. Great, Mike, thank you. Um, I'm gonna, um, uh, since clearly the uh, the security dynamics link is is an area that needs needs work in my thinking and writing, um, I'm going to take your second point um, uh, as food for thought. Um, in terms of the uh, rational acceptance or or rejection um, uh, and unjustified rejection, this is kind of where I'm. Uh, at least alluded to the thinking about what we're not thinking about notion as sort of a, a practical, uh, if difficult, policy implication of this. Um, so particularly for those of us who are in the on the side of sort of uh, critical analysts of security policy, um, the casting a skeptical eye to when we see this language in justifications for defense acquisition or arguments for some programs as opposed to others. Someone uh, in particular for me, hobby horses, the notion of technological change, technology is changing exponentially. And that's 
often referred to and is a justification for um, why the US military needs to innovate or adapt or um, do whatever the particular author is suggesting it needs to do. Exponential change has a very clear mathematical definition of what that is and very few dynamics of technology, even information technology, are actually exponential, but we just refer to exponential change uncritically, and we as sort of the broader royal we here. Um, so the notion of rational acceptance versus unjustified rejection, I guess my at least first order uh, desire is a little bit more modest, which is at least encouraging a skeptical consumption of this language, that reference to breakthrough, reference to pending revolution or disruption does not justify um, uh, a particular program per se. Not taking that for granted first and foremost, and not unselfconsciously replicating that language in our own ref you know, descriptions and analysis of you know, artificial intelligence, for example, just taking the language of this is there's a fourth industrial revolution which hinges on AI. We don't actually know that there is. Maybe in retrospect, 50 years down the line, we will, and historians can look back and say, yes, there was in fact a, a fourth industrial revolution. But I guess increasing our level of skepticism when we encounter that language as a form of hand-waving around more critical and serious analysis of the technology at stake, the risk and rewards of using that technology, the failure points of that technology. So back to quantum, as quantum technology is really interesting. Its potential is, is remarkable. It's also really, really hard. So controlling quantum systems, dealing with quantum error correction may mean that the technological capabilities which are promised or imagined are never actually manifest. And at least entertaining or engaging those questions about costs and countervailing arguments when we encounter this particular type of discourse is at least my, maybe that's low hanging fruit, but that's at least my first desire or ambition. Uh, and then I'll get into telling the Air Force what they should or shouldn't buy um, in my next draft. Over. All right, and uh, John Mueller, do you have another question as well? Hey, uh, Frank, I, I put it in the chat and you probably already saw it. And this maybe relates to some of the other questions, certainly relates to what Mike was just talking about, which is kind of just trying to unpack more and more motivations and get them out on the table. And we've been talking a lot about kind of the, you know, organizational policy advocacy you know, um, uh, motivations. And you also mentioned kind of the psychological uh, aspect in your talk that it just feels good and makes you feel important um, uh, to hype perhaps. Um, I'm just wondering like how many explanations can we get? You know, if you look at kind of uh, American and Chinese discourse, on the surface, it sounds very similar. And you might just say, okay, this is what uh, happens in national security discourse. Uh, people look at their rivals, something's going on. They want a quick tech fix. They come up with something. Um, but when you start to unpack it, the reasons that they're are hyping might be different in these two national contexts, right? Um, you know, kind of the classic Ted Lowy, you know, uh, story about, um, you know, policy oversell in a democracy like the United States uh, uh, rings true in a lot of, uh, uh, you know, 
quantum hype and other hype that you hear in the United States. But uh, the determinist rhetoric in China, right, is incredibly consistent. Um, and part of that's an ideology story, part of it's an ideology interacting with a one party system, right? Um, where technology determines tactics. Also had a fantastic you know, quote in there that may or may not have been from uh, Engels, but um, even if it's not, it's actually even better that way. Um, so, so, you know, do we have different causes of hype? Does that matter um, if it's psychological versus ideological versus national institutional versus narrow organizational? Would we expect hype to be more or less important in these different contexts? Um, I don't know if we know that, but I mean, like, those are the questions would be cool to kind of. Agree on the cool. Um, and I apologize for everyone in the chat. I am um, mentally slow and not able to multitask. So I haven't been following the chat while talking, but I'm hoping to uh, capture and cut and paste all of that um, for my future work. Um, in terms of motivations, I think there are there are two sets of questions which I'm trying to uh, to address here. First is on the supply side, so motivations of why talk this talk. Um, and John, as you and, and Nelson and others have flagged, in different uh, both organizational settings and national settings, there may be different motivational factors for um, why uh, the uh, PLA may advocate um, or make uh, grand statements about progress in terms of its quantum uh, technology versus uh, why the US NSA um, or other aspects of our national security community may make similar claims. I, I think though there are relatively broad bins in which you can uh, sort of chunk those motivations in even if the local uh, details vary. Um, but I take the point in terms of un unpacking the, the motivations um, on the supply side. That is a slightly different in terms of uh, you know, the supply demand dichotomy breaks down here a little bit, but the acceptance side. Um, and so I am also trying to tease out the logic of given an abundant supply, given all the motivations, really the supply of hype being overdetermined, um, why of this crowded my marketplace do some ideas, and I think this gets to, to John Mueller's point earlier, why do some communities or some audiences accept some ideas, some exceptional expectations, as opposed to other comparably exceptional and probably comparably empirically unsupported expectations about other technologies? And so on that uh, acceptance side or demand side, I'm also trying to, to tease out the logic there. Um, it, not getting around the question of, of multiple causes of supply, but in some senses conceding that there's an abundance of, at the individual level, organizational level, and even national level, abundance of reasons to talk hype. Final point on this though, that I think links to sort of fleshing out the international security uh, implications that uh, you, John, and Mike Panansky, and, and Eugene Gultz and others have flagged. The one aspect of, of supply that I haven't fleshed out well here is the signaling implications. And so what is um, China and arguably, what are we trying to signal in terms of strategic reveal, conceal questions with claims about, um, you know, our claims about what technology we think is going to be 
the next big thing versus which ones we choose to dismiss or disregard. Um, and so the communicative, strategic communications aspect and signaling intentional or otherwise. I suspect a lot of it is probably otherwise, but on the supply side, there is an interesting question of to the extent to which Chinese hype may be strategic, what is communicated with these extraordinary claims of technological prowess um, and what is also concealed um, in those? What are, um, you know, looking over here at this shiny thing, what are they distracting from over here on this other potential gap weakness or vulnerability? Um, so take the point and, and your notion of unpacking motivations is really helpful for my thinking about sort of structuring that level of my analysis. So thank you. Yeah, or, or do you want to strategically encourage a rival to uh, hype something that you don't believe in? I mean, I, I'm all for like telling the Chinese that we're really, really worried about quantum. The more they spend on quantum, that's money they're not spending elsewhere. And that's money that's probably not actually going to convert into an advantage. So, you know, that might be another aspect as well. Uh, and maybe there's a Star Wars story that can be told. SDR. Oh, there's, there's definitely a, a Star Wars story to be told, particularly in the context of, of AI and the like. But and maybe this also, as you flagged, in some ways helps me um, address some of, of, of Mike Posnansky's questions about sort of policy implications of if you understand this discourse and what it does and doesn't do can then potentially more, be more strategic in, in how we use it. So maybe saying, yeah, quantum key distribution is, um, it, it's the bomb. This is really serious. We're really, really worried about the Chinese doing this to the extent to which that communicates them to go down a technological branch, which we actually privately think is um, going nowhere. The deliberate use of the language, I have less of a problem with. My problem is more the uncritical acceptance and, and replication of it um, uh, without that without that sort of strategic logic. Over. That just reminds me a lot of Nina's prior point as well about the entanglement of discourses that undermines your capacity to be fully deliberate about signaling. One thing that comes to mind, and forgive me if this is a bit anecdotal, but certainly the Chinese military's reaction to AlphaGo and the broader AlphaGo narrative in PRC state media at the time was fascinating, and uh, in, including insofar as one of the apparently underlying assumptions was that if Google had it, then clearly the US military could do so as well, which is ironic given subsequent events. And if I might take moderators prerogative to chime in with a, another comment in direction of uh, what sort of John had brought up as well, I think that we sometimes may may underestimate the degree to which bureaucracy is also a factor for the Chinese military and how arguably there may also be beyond ideology and instrumentality to some of their own use of hype discourse uh, in terms of trying to reorient investments and priorities against the backdrop of uh, very disruptive reforms. So certainly a lot to discuss on this front and uh, ha happy to take more questions if folks want to stick around or uh, happy to wrap up. I don't, don't want to impose too much on everyone's afternoon, but I think there's definitely a lot to discuss here. And let me just thank everyone, and particularly you, Elsa, for um, uh, moderating and everyone for your time this afternoon. It's been um, really fantastic and, and um, helped me uh, figure out where I need to develop uh, this line of, uh, of argument further. Um, so thank you, for, uh, thank you for your comments and for all your helpful questions. And likewise, I'd echo those thanks and uh, looking forward to continuing the conversation sometime. Take care, everyone. And I will turn it over to Brandon for any uh, any final closing remarks.
Uh, no, that's it. I, I thought that was a great conversation. I'm glad everyone could participate. Um, if there's any wrap up questions, let me know. But uh, I think we're about done. And uh, hopefully I'll see you all next month. And uh, hopefully we'll have a talk about hypersonics to keep the hype theme alive.